I don't think anybody got into this building this morning without coming across that driveway. And you must have felt the wind and are very conscious of the fact that winter is just around the corner. Well, this morning I'd like for us to think about our need to have our cars winter tune-up, if you've not already done it. This is the best time to do it, instead of waiting till winter's right up on you. Car dealers, service departments, mechanics will all tell you that it's good to have your car winterized. Need to check all the parts. Maybe some of them need adjusting or replacing. Because cold weather is hard, for, it's hard on cars to get them started. But we're going to just use that as a takeoff to talk about having a, a winter spiritual checkup. Of course, these checkups that are spiritual ought to be done year in and year out, whether it's spring, winter, summer, or autumn. But since winter's almost upon us, and that's a good time to winterize your car, we're going to talk about making these adjustments that may be necessary, maybe not, in our spiritual lives. For example, when we came back from France, we bought a Falcon Ford station wagon, one of those little station wagons, but we got a lot of good service out of it. Drove it for over 100,000 miles, and we didn't sell it until we started to come back to England, which was over five and a half years later. We advertised to sell it where we were living. There weren't too many people there wanting a Ford <laughs> Falcon station wagon that had over 100,000 miles, but one man who was a crop duster uh, was interested. So just a day or two before we had to get rid of the car, because we used it right up to the last minute, I went to his house. I said, what would you give me for this car? He said, I'll give you, and I think it was $400, which doesn't sound like very much. Of course, that was in 1970, and 400 is more than what it is today. I said, well, now, if you'll drive the car, you'll see it's worth a lot more than just $400. And he said, no, I don't need to drive it, which I was kind of felt flattered that he wouldn't drive the car, just take my word for it. He'd seen it around town a lot. So I didn't have any other choice. I took the 400, and he had the car. Sometime later, people would ride us from McCrory, about the church and you know about home when we were in England and time or two people would mention we still see your car running about town so I know the man got his money's worth the car kept going well we had our difficulties just things that would normally wear out and uh, I'll probably refer to a few of those in this particular car in this lesson this morning <coughs> excuse me <coughs> for example I remember driving down the highway at nighttime, and cars approaching me, they'd blink their lights. You know, like they were signaling, trying to tell me something. And I knew what they were trying to tell me. My, they thought my brights were on, but my brights weren't on. I had on the dims, and I would blink them back to show them they can get brighter than what they are. Well, my lights needed adjusting. I mean, the dims were bright. <laughs> So I needed to get them adjusted. Well, sometimes as Christians, our Christian lights may need adjusting as well. Has there ever been a time, whether it's on the job or at home or in the classroom or at Walmart or wherever, when people would perhaps like to signal us 
that we need to adjust our Christian lights. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, and neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Even so let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Christianity is to be seen. <clears throat> it's William Barclay who said that there can be no such thing as secret discipleship. For either the secrecy will destroy the discipleship or the discipleship will destroy the secrecy. Now, we know what he's talking about. If I'm a little bit fearful or embarrassed or leery about letting people know I'm a disciple, I'm going to keep it a secret. I don't want to act like a disciple. They might suspect I am. They don't want to see me living like a disciple. I don't want them to see me living like a disciple talking like a disciple, trying to reach out and bring people as a disciple would do and worship God regularly in things of a discipleship. Well, now, if I keep that up, I'm going to kill my discipleship. Secrecy will do that. But on the other hand, if I live like a disciple of Jesus Christ ought to live, you can't keep that a secret. Your light's going to shine to all that see you and who know you and know what you do on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. They're going to know by the way you talk, the way you work, and all of these things that you're a disciple. Secrecy will destroy discipleship, and discipleship will destroy secrecy. And so... Light is to be perfectly visible to all men. And he's not just saying ye are the light of the church. but well, we ought to be that. But he's saying ye are the light of the world. Even so, let men see your good works. In Colossians 1 and 13... Paul said that ye have been delivered out of the powers of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So becoming a disciple takes us out of the realm of the kingdom of darkness. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 9, Ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." That ye may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our Christianity is to be visible to everybody. <clears throat> there was a woman who lived in a, uh, who worked in a place where she was the only Christian. And it got sort of lonely for her. 
got discouraged when sometimes she'd be ridiculed for her faith and maybe even accused of being narrow-minded. In fact, she became so discouraged, she was thinking about quitting jobs, changing. And she mentioned this to one of her Christian friends one day. And after the friend listened to her complaints, she said, well, Susan, where do people usually put lights? And she replied, in dark places. And she had no sooner answered the question when she saw the application to her own life. She was working in a dark place. And as she thought about it, she realized she was needed there. Her influence for Christ was needed in that dark place. And so she just resolved to stay on and to use her influence for the Lord. And in the passing of time, she had the opportunity to talk to about 13 of her fellow workers about Jesus Christ. Christianity is to be seen of men. Not to get glory for ourselves, but that they might glorify the Father, having seen our works, the Father who is in heaven. Whoops. Our light should be visible in the ordinary activities of life. Our Christianity should be seen in the way we treat our fellow workers, in the way we order a meal at the cafe, uh, restaurant or cafe, in the way we treat our employees or serve our employer, the way we play a game, the way we drive and park our car, and in our daily language. So this spiritual tune-up will involve checking our lights and to see if they need adjusting, our Christian lights. Also, this checkup ought to involve timing. Spiritually speaking, we're thinking about adjusting our timing so that we can be at every service every Bible study, and to be there on time. Now, I'm talking to all of us, including my own family, when I'm talking about being on time. It's a matter of really timing. Let me give you a little history of most families. Here's a young couple, they get married, and they, they get up, and they go to Bible class, which is great. You know, I commend young folks and all folks, but... Uh, young married couples getting up and going to Bible class. But their plan is to get there just about on time. Sometimes things happen so that they're not really on time. They may be a few minutes late. But they're just about on time. Maybe two or three minutes early. Maybe four or five minutes late, you know. But they're just about on time every time. Well, in time, they have a baby. Well, that involves more work for the mother. She has to get up a little earlier. She has more work to do. But still the goal is to get to Bible class about on time. And I commend mothers and the families who bring their children to Bible class. Then time goes on, they have another, a second, maybe a third or fourth. I don't know how big a family they're going to have. But each time, the mother's going to have to get up a little bit earlier. They've got a little bit more work to do. But what's the goal? It's to be at Bible class about on time. 
really, doesn't that prove that it's a matter of timing? If we could just plan to be there, say, 10 minutes early, you know, it wouldn't hurt to be 10 or 15 or whatever early because things do happen that we cannot control that makes us be a little bit later than we want to be. So maybe we need to set our timing a little bit earlier. Now, I know it's a temptation Saturday night to stay up because Sunday is a, a day off of work. and uh, But still, we need to be vervent. Where is that the word? We want to be vibrant when we come to worship God. It's not a time for rest. It's a time to be focusing upon every aspect of our worship. You know, giving our full attention, not just to the preacher, but to the, the words as we sing and, and every part of our worship. And so it's good to be rested for our worship services Sunday so we can be on time. And also we need to set our timing so that we can be at every service. In Matthew, excuse me, in uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now, that doesn't say not forsaking the assembly. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we have a teaching that we ought to be, to have our timing set if it needs setting. To be on time, to be at every service. Then also, there are times when we may need to adjust our brakes. And I'm thinking now about adjusting the brakes on your tongue. Because it's in a very slippery place. James says in James chapter 3 and verse 8, 9, and 10 that the tongue is a very restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made it after the likeness of men. Out of the same mouth cometh forth both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not so to be. We need to put an adjustment on our tongue. I think we know from experience that man is sort of, sort of a dual being. We're not schizophrenic. Uh, we don't have this dual personality. But the Bible, for example, in Romans chapter 8, speaks about how we as Christians should uh, have our minds controlled by the Spirit that leads to life rather than to have our minds controlled by the flesh which leads to death. So we're capable of going both, ra- both ways. John Bunyan, in his book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, talks about one of his characters. And he calls him Talkative, because he did a lot of talking. That's a good name, Talkative. But this is what he says about Talkative. He says that Talkative was a saint abroad and a devil at home. Many a man speaks with perfect courtesy to strangers and yet snaps with impatient anger and irritability at his own family at home. It has not been unknown for a man to pray and speak with piety on Sunday and then to curse 
a group of workmen on Monday. It's not been unknown for a man to utter the most pious sentiments one day and to repeat the most questionable stories the next. It has not been unknown for a woman to speak with gracious sweetness to her sisters in the assembly and then to go outside to murder someone's reputation with malicious and a gossiping tongue. We need to adjust the brakes on our tongues from time to time to keep them adjusted. That's a part of our spiritual tune-up. But one of the things we'd mention, we need to check and see if we need to add antifreeze. What about the brakes on our tongues? Now, as human beings, we have a, a great need to keep those adjusted at all times. Now, this car I've been telling you about, <laughs> it had one of those leaky hoses, radiator hoses, and so I lost my antifreeze. Went to get it replaced. They replaced just that one hose. A couple of weeks later, I had another hose leak. Had it replaced. A couple more weeks, another hose. Three different hoses, and I had to have antifreeze added three different times. So when I think about adding antifreeze to our car, you know, they say you need it in there the year round. When I was a kid, I thought it was just for cold weather to keep the radiator from freezing over and bursting and so forth. But it's supposed to keep your engine from getting too hot in the summer. So all year. The two things that come to my mind when I think about adding antifreeze to our, our spiritual hearts. One is zeal. We can become indifferent, apathetic, and we need to be enthusiastic for the Lord. Romans 12 and 11 says... Indiligence, not slothful. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. We're to serve the Lord with great zeal. And so add some antifreeze when that's uh, lacking. But another thought that comes to mind when we're thinking about adding antifreeze, and that is to add warmth. A spirit of understanding, sympathy to our lives. There are three Greek words that are translated good in the New Testament. I'll mention two of those to make a point. One of them is called agathos, and it means good in quality. Beneficial in its effect. And this is the word the Lord uses twice in Luke 8 and 15 when he's talking about the parable of the of the sower. He's talking about that good ground, you know, the fourth soil, fourth heart. He says, now, these are those who have an honest and good heart, who when they hear the word of God, they hold it fast and bring forth fruit with patience or steadfastness. So it's a good kind of heart, agathos. But there's another kind, it's called kalos. And it also means anything that is of that's good in quality. But also, and it adds this point, it's the quality of being winsome, warm, beautiful, attractive. And we find this word being used in the Bible. In, uh, in our text, we use Matthew 5, 16, even so let men see your good works 
That's the kind of word that's used there. Not just good works that are good in quality, but they're winsome type of works. 1 Timothy 3 and 7, talking about the qualifications for the elders. They're to have a good report from those that are outside the church. A good reputation. They're to be, they're, they're, their lives are to be of such good quality. Not only are they beneficial, but they're winsome. They have a beautiful life that commends itself to even those who are outside the church. And so when we have this need to add antifreeze to our lives, to our spiritual lives, we're thinking about adding some of this collard. So I'll not mention the third kind. It just makes the sermon long. So that we will have lives that are good in quality, but also winsome. You know, there's, there's some goodness that attracts, and there is some goodness that repels. And the kind that repels may be good and uh, have a good quality about it, but it's sort of cold and hard. And we need some of that antifreeze in there that's bubbling over, that makes us understanding with other folks, sympathetic to their needs and their concerns and their lives. That's the kind that wins people. We want a goodness that is winsome. And we need to add that to our lives. Well, I commend you to, uh, to the Bible. The great mechanic, I don't think Jesus called that in the Bible, but he's a great physician. And he'll heal whatever is lacking in our lives. We have a song of invitation we want to sing to encourage those who are outside of Christ. Who have the burden of sin they're caring about every day. Jesus has promised to relieve us of that burden. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he explains that to be a rest unto your soul. He made the perfect sacrifice, acceptable by God, so that all who have sins may come to him for the forgiveness of those sins. To be made a new creation. To grow in the image of Jesus Christ, his son. To carry about with them not a burden of sin, but the hope of eternal life. And if you don't have that, the Lord wants you to have it. He alone can give it to you. And we want to encourage you to accept it. Jesus said, except ye believe that I am he, John 8, 24, you shall all die in your sins. We don't want to die in our sins. That separates us from God forever. So we need to believe that he's the son of God. But he said, except you repent, you shall also in like manner perish, Luke 13 and 3. And so we need to change our lives that are not in accord with his will at repentance. We want to confess him before men. Because if thou wilt confess with thy mouth, Christ is Lord, thou shalt be saved. The confession of our faith is a part of the plan of salvation. But being buried with him in baptism leads us up to the blood of Christ. It is there that we come in spiritual contact with the efficacious blood that Christ has shed to save us from our sins. And if you have your sins, you need that blood to forgive you. You need to come to him, surrendering your whole life and obeying the gospel. If you're subject to the gospel, won't you come as together we stand and sing?